This is the JGI podcast, where we talk to members of the University of Bristol's data science research community, brought to you by the Gene Golding Institute. Hi, everyone. My name is Hugh Day. Welcome to the JGI podcast. I'm here joined by James Thomas, also a data scientist at the JGI, and we are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Matt Williams, who is a research software engineer here at the University of Bristol. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Um, we're really interested to, to hear more about how the software side of things has been integrated more and more into data science. Uh, and given that we've worked with you quite a lot at the JGI, um, we were interested to have you on uh, and hear about how you got into being a research software engineer here at Bristol. So could you tell us a bit about your kind of career path? Sure, I guess the key points on my career path was my PhD was at CERN. So I was working on one of the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. That sort of large data project, large amounts of uh, information being collected, you know, uh, it's a massive, massive project, inevitably produces huge, huge amounts of data. And so uh, one of the big challenges there is working out how to find amongst all that data, like the interesting things, the stuff that you actually care about because what you're looking for, it's a classic needle in a haystack kind of problem. And so they've had over the years, lots and lots of different approaches to that. Um, and uh, that inevitably means that you require a lot of software expertise to be able to do what would traditionally have been an experimental science. And that first sort of gave me my uh, insight into the use of software in that sort of large scale way as part of research. That's awesome. And and so that PhD was in physics, I presume? Yes, and, that was in physics. And so you'd done like an undergrad before that in physics and kind of took on that path. And then so afterwards, were you like, yes, I want to stay in physics? Or was it more, I like the computing side, I want to try that? But well, what, I, what I found was that the physics was harder than the computing. Uh, I enjoyed physics. I did physics as my undergraduate and my PhD was in particle physics. But I started to see that in terms of what I was excelling at, the stuff I was enjoying the most, was definitely on the computing side and not on the physics side. I could see that if I were to be able to carry on in this career, I'd have to focus where my my energies lied. And that was quickly becoming the case that it was clear it was, you know, the software side of things. Okay. And and so once you kind of recognize that, what was the next step? So you finish your PhD and you're thinking, okay, physics, maybe not it, but uh, research software engineering is, is what you're into. So how did you go from there? I think it's the problem that if we PhD student has, you finish your PhD and you don't know what you're doing next. You're just trying to find a job that seems to align with what you're doing. Maybe you want to go down an academic pathway and you're looking around for early early career postdocs and things like that. Because I was interested in staying working at university because I'm interested in research for the public good, I sort of wanted to find a way to uh, apply my software skills at a university. Now, traditionally, there's been different ways to do that. You can go and work in IT and start providing you know, servers and compute resources to, to people. Um, more and more universities around that time were getting their own high performance computing departments. Uh, so, you know, their own sort of supercomputers they have for their own researchers. But because I was coming from a particle physics background, there is a thing called the Worldwide LHC Computing Grid, a big worldwide network of supercomputers all connected together where different universities have their own little subset of it. I was doing my PhD at the University of Warwick and the next city just over in Birmingham, they had one of these centers at the university and they happened just while I was finishing my PhD to have a job to go and help them look after that supercomputing cluster, sometime doing systems administration and sometime doing software development for the researchers in that particular group. So I thought, well, that's a combination of stuff that I know about and stuff that I can learn about. 
And I'm interested, Matt, at, at what stage did you become aware of this uh, research software engineer career pathway that, that you're on now? Was that a thing when you when you first started at, at Birmingham there? No, it wasn't. So I started working at Birmingham around 2013 or so. And while I think if you read back in the history books, you'll see that the term research software engineer was coined around that time. It hadn't really caught on outside of the sphere of people who were starting to look at that kind of thing. So uh, the job that I had at Birmingham was called computing officer. It was universities and research groups trying to solve the same problem that research software engineering as a career path was trying to solve. And that is you have people working in research who have particular expertise in software or these days in data science, things like this, but uh, are having to sort of fit inside the framework of you're expected to publish papers, you're doing a postdoc, you're working towards a lectureship and a professorship and that kind of pathway. So there was an idea of that kind of thing, but the term research software engineer and the idea that it is a career path and a role that is, is transferable across different domains wasn't really seen. The job that I had was a job inside that group to serve that group without any real thought that other groups at the university would have the same problem. Other groups at other places around the world would have the same problem. It was quite late in my time at Birmingham that the idea of research software engineering as a title came up. And it happened luckily to align with when my contract was ending. So I was able to then start looking for jobs focused now around this thing that I'd found out about this research software engineer title. And then you'd entered this career path from doing a PhD in physics and working in particle physics. Is that is that the only way into this this career path now, or are there you know what sort of careers or backgrounds do you see people come from? So we sort of see this research software engineer position that is becoming more and more common all across the world as being uh, distinct from what you would have as a standard. If there is such a thing, standard software engineer working for a company. And I think the, the key difference there is that research focus. Working as a research software engineer, doing software development at a university requires a certain understanding of how universities work, how research is carried out, that sort of independence of being able to direct yourself that comes with having done a PhD. So traditionally, most research software engineers or RSEs do have PhDs. I think partly that's uh, a forced effect due to people doing a PhD, realizing they want to do software, finding that there's a job there waiting for them, rather than RSE positions being gated to have a PhD. I know of lots of RSEs who don't have PhDs. And so certainly it's something that's open more widely than that. I think the key thing is that you understand the research process. You're able to pivot in that way that research is unpredictable. You are, by definition, discovering something that isn't known. I think that's the thing that makes an RSE position unique compared to a, what might be a traditional software engineer. And presumably the expertise in one particular subject or another, presumably that doesn't matter. Either. Absolutely. So I had my background in particle physics. I started after my time at Birmingham here at the University of Bristol working in the synthetic biology group. So they had uh, the university's first research software engineer. They'd crossed it onto their grant uh, and that position had had been emptied and so there was a position there available for me to step into and I wasn't an expert in synthetic biology I hadn't done any biology since I was <laughs> yeah I hadn't done it since I was 15 or something I could barely remember any of the terms they were talking about they were talking about assays and ligands and I I was just there on my phone looking this stuff up but once you get to a certain level of understanding in the domain 
you can very, very quickly apply your expertise and combine it with their expertise and background and create something new that if you were staying within your field, you wouldn't necessarily have thought of. That's really interesting how you've been able to sort of thread that path all the way through. And, and I know for myself, it's definitely something familiar as a data scientist of, of having accumulated a certain expertise in one thing. But actually, one other thing that I learned was how to accumulate expertise. And so like you were saying, once you've kind of figured out how to do that once, which is obviously something a PhD will teach you how to do, you can then quite easily go into something else. And it's a bit bumpy as you kind of go into it. But eventually you're like, oh, OK, well, I know how to learn stuff. So I've just got to learn stuff and apply what I already know to that. So that's really interesting to see the parallels there between like our paths and, and the kind of stuff that you do. Yeah, I really think that the, the key skill that you need, well, I think in most areas of life, is the ability to learn things, to be able to pick stuff up and to apply them in an effective way. I never try to judge people who I am um, interviewing on the interview panel or who I'm meeting at a conference or anything like this based on all my students when I'm teaching um, the stuff that I do teach to them on what they they know. It's never important to know facts, in my opinion. I don't know many facts. I know where to find those facts. I know how to find someone to teach me the new facts I need in a certain domain, but I don't remember things. I just learn them as I need them. And enough of it sinks in that you make patterns in the back of your head about how they combine together and then you find new things out from that. You mentioned there um, teaching which I really wanted to get onto that subject uh, because that's how you and I met is that you were running coding courses here at the University of Bristol and I was a, a, a math PhD student who didn't know how to code uh, and uh, and now I'm a data scientist who allegedly does. Um, so yeah I uh, would love to hear more about uh, what kind of teaching that you've been involved with here at the University of Bristol. Sure I think teaching's been one of those things that I've always really enjoyed the thought of even just back when I was a, a child I remember helping my sister with her maths homework and coming up with ways to remember how you divide fractions by each other, these little mnemonics about how you do this sort of stuff. And I sort of thought, oh, OK, I'm sort of coming up with a way to explain this. And it seems like she's understanding the stuff that I'm explaining. And throughout my time through university, there was fewer opportunities to do this kind of thing. But while I was working at the University of Birmingham, so once I was actually my first job after PhD, there were these postgraduate training sessions that they were providing as part of the PhD training for the new students coming through. And so that was the first time I really got a chance to actually take part in teaching this stuff and understand the process of teaching. I've never had any real formal training in teaching. I've really just taken it from an approach of, I think about what I didn't know recently and how I learned it and try to keep that in my mind as I'm then going forward to teach it. Because uh, you're never that far ahead of the students when you're teaching things. It's it's, it's surprisingly close sometimes how, uh, how how close together you and the students can be. Um, so one of the things I really was keen on doing when I came here to Bristol, and I spoke about it in my interview, I said, what I'd really like is to be not just a researcher who's writing papers and not just a research software engineer who's writing software, not just a lecturer who's standing in front of a class. I'd like to be a sort of software, research software engineer lecturer who can spend some of your time solving people's problems with software and some of my time teaching people how to solve their own problems with software. And I think that was well received. And it's something which over the years, um, working with the um, Supercomputing Center here at Bristol and with the Gene Golding Institute, we've managed to put together a really good sort of formulation of how to teach people at the university how to solve the problems they have for themselves. 
Yeah, that's, that's that's awesome to hear that um, that kind of narrative there of of, of getting into it, and I, I think that's something that quite a lot of uh, people from the sort of more technical tract where we we've always like had peers or, or like you said siblings or whatever grow up who who didn't want to do the math so much. Like, no, nah, I can I can teach you if I can make my brain do it. I'd like to figure out how to make someone else's brain do it as well. Um, so so would you be able to tell us a bit more about um, the the ACRC um, coding courses that you run? Absolutely. So the ACRC is the Advanced Computing Research Centre. That's the group at the university who do a, a bunch of things. They look after the university's supercomputers, so they allow people to you know, run calculations at very large scales. They run the university's data storage facility, so it allows you to save large data sets that you produced as part of research and publish them and share them with other people. But the third main pillar of that is this research software engineering stuff that we do. And one of the big aspects of that is this training, because we see that uh, software is a really integral part of pretty much all research. More than three quarters of all research is dependent on research software. Now, we have a smallish team of research software engineers at Bristol. We can count them on two hands. And there's no way that that many people can support tens of thousands of researchers, students, etc. So you have to come up with a solution to allow people to get the best research that they can possibly do out of what the facilities they have are. And so teaching is, is the way that we, we decide to approach that. There's lots you can do with teaching. You can do entire undergraduate master's programs, PhDs in software design, all this kind of thing. But really what the vast majority of people need is just a certain level of digital literacy, competency with the basic introductory tools that allow them to solve the tasks that they are having to solve manually. And so a lot of what we do is just teaching basic programming language from an introductory level. So introduction to Python is one of the most popular courses we do because lots of people benefit from just how can you write a little bit of code to do something repeatedly. The next most popular course we do is one that teaches people how to do basic data analysis tasks. And sort of the perspective I take with that is lots and lots of people at the university, probably everyone at the university, myself included, use spreadsheet tools like Excel to do data analysis. You take your data and you copy it in and you drag some stuff around and you click some buttons and you type some magic stuff into the um, formula uh, bar at the top. You maybe get a graph out at the end. And you think, okay, great, I've done some data science. And you have, absolutely, you've done some data science there because you've managed to throw some data in at one end, understand what it means and get a result out the other end. But I feel that by teaching people how to do this stuff programmatically, they can if they manage to get their head around it and uh, have the time to invest to learn it, make their lives easier, make more robust research out of it. And so really focusing on those particular pain points, which I've seen, we kind of uh, put most of our energy into trying to solve those problems for researchers. And so those kind of introductory tools, the basics of how these things work, how we manage to teach thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the years I've taught at the university by taking this sort of approach of not trying to teach them everything, but just trying to teach them enough to be dangerous. And I'm, you know, you've spoken there about about training at the university, uh, postgraduate students, postgraduate researchers, but I know as well, Matt, that you've been involved in some training programs for secondary school pupils outside of the university environment. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, so um, there was a project that we did in association, and in fact, James was working on it with me. That was a well-placed question. Um, it's called uh, Dataface in, a, in a association with the Cheltenham uh, Science Festivals uh, to try and 
bring that level of digital competency sort of further down the chain. It's in some ways, it's not, it's not too late, but it feels quite late in the day to wait until people are 25 and doing a PhD or a postdoc before you say, ah, here's how you should have been solving these problems that you've been grinding away at for a long time. Now, some university undergraduate programs, more and more, are teaching these skills as part of it. More and more A-level programs are starting to include some of this stuff, like Python programming is pretty common in the maths and sciences and in the computing, certainly A-level programs. But further down than that, despite the government's um, coding curriculum that came in about 10 years ago or so, it seems that it's not quite still sinking in sufficiently across the board, partly just due to the really hard job that teachers have of A, picking up these skills and B, having the breadth of, you know, and time to be able to teach all these different things. And so one of the things we wanted to do was to provide some framework and teaching materials and sort of structure to how you can start learning about some uh, basic data science concepts to people at school. I think we were aiming at around year nine kind of age. So that's sort of 13 year olds or so, because that's the point where they're really starting to do complicated things in their maths and science. They're actually starting to do experiments to understand how that process works. And if you can introduce the idea of how you can do something really exciting with the data that comes out of that, it's a really good inflection point to catch their imagination and show you, oh, well, yeah, you can, you, can, you can really do something with this. It's not just a spreadsheet you get out the end, you do a graph and you move on. You can explore and understand. There's a whole second phase of science you can do after the physical experiment that you performed. And I think it was a really sort of fun experience of working out how to teach, you know, at that level and have, you know, the based on the experience and skills that those students have to give them this extra layer. Yeah, and I know I, based on, I saw some of the teaching materials that, that you put together and it was great to see that you'd aimed those not just at the computer science teachers or the science or maths teachers, that those were aimed across the board, uh, various subjects at, at school level, which I think possibly echoes what you said earlier about working across disciplines at the university. Yeah, I'm very keen. I mean, historically, it's been the purview of the engineering physical sciences to be doing this kind of heavy software engineering. I started my career in a particle physics group, and that's that's no that's sort of that's where a lot of this stuff came out of back in the day. But it's clear that these kind of data and software skills are applicable in every aspect of research, but broader than that i've had people from the admissions department here at the university come along to my training courses because they have spreadsheets of people applying to university and they want to understand who is applying and how they can tease apart the information that's inside that data so it's clearly not just something that physicists care about we have digital historians we have artists we have you know huge collections of you know historical artifacts at the university there is data there to be explored i think it's really important that we're able to give the people the skills they need to be able to find stuff out about them. And so when when someone comes on one of those teaching, those training courses at the university that you run, what's the, you know, if they have more queries or they're working on a project like those um, people that you spoke about there, what's what's the next step? What what, what other things do you offer that, that they can do? So it's, it's really part of a multi-phase aspect that I was talking about. So I was mentioning we have a team of research software engineers who work at the university and provide expert skills that they can go into a research group and do work for them. But that doesn't scale across the whole university. So teaching is the other aspect of that, where we go out and we talk to uh, you know, 
hundreds of people a year, a few thousand people a year, given those basic skills. But the teaching we provide by its nature has to be kind of a little bit generic. We can't give specialized expert opinions to every single person in the room. We as much as we can do, but a lot of the time the people in the room don't know what questions they have. They might not realize until three months later when they're at their computer trying to solve a problem and they're thinking, ah, oh, Matt mentioned something about this. How does that apply to what I'm trying to do right now? And so the, th the third phase of uh, provision that we provide is what we call the Ask RSE program. So this is uh, asking research software engineers one-on-one -on -one questions. So we have an email address, people can email us at askrse at bristol.ac.uk and uh, ask us a question about their software saying from things like my code's not compiling through to how can I work out how to structure this complicated problem that I'm trying to, to work through. It works in a very similar way to the Ask JGI program that the uh, Gene Golding Institute have where you just take on any question and you try and solve them and every single question is different to the previous one. But it's really exciting and interesting because you get to find new people across the university that you wouldn't have come across otherwise. Um, so I really enjoy uh, the variety of questions we get and they often then lead into larger research projects because they realize, ah, I thought this was a hard problem to solve, but you show me that actually it's doable. So let's scale this up and solve an even bigger problem that I thought was out of, you know, out of scope. And so you mentioned that you have this team of research software engineers at the university. And I think, you know, from what we spoke about at the beginning, when you started your career, this research software engineer term wasn't wasn't really a thing. Uh, and certainly it's come on since then. And I know that you personally are involved in the development of research software engineering as a as a as a thing um, through your involvement in the society of research software engineers. Could you tell us you know, about what, what your role is there and what, what you've been doing? Yeah, so I first got involved with that sort of community of people in this area, actually just as I was starting at Bristol. Uh, the person who hired me was helping to run the first RSE conference. It was in Manchester back in 2016. And uh, I didn't know that that was a thing that existed. I barely knew that research software engineers were a thing outside of the job that I was applying for. So that was a really good sort of introduction to that whole community of people who it turned out had all been through the same thought process as I had, the same path as I had. They'd been working generally in research, maybe had a PhD, but were now realizing that actually software and applying those skills to other people was where they wanted to be honing their, their skills. And so that community really started to form together and uh, lobby the funding agencies to say, well, maybe you should actually be supporting this research software engineer thing as a career path. Uh, they, UKRI funded some fellowships in research software engineering to try and seed these RSE groups at various universities. And one of the things that came out of this sort of community was a formal organization, a professional organization to represent people doing research software engineering, whether as their headline title job or just as a part of their role amongst other things. Um, and so we formed the Society of Research Software Engineering back in 2019. Um, and I stood to be a trustee in that first year, and I've been doing it for the last four or so years. You've now become um, the president of Yes, so I, I started off doing being the treasurer. Uh, I had no experience with uh, with accounting, so that was a quick, quick experience. Um, so I did that for a few years, and then I've since stepped up and have been running as the president for the last few years. And really, we just try to provide a community for people doing these things, give some visibility to people who are in that similar kind of experience of thinking, I like doing software, but I want to work in a research environment. How do those things fit together? And we want to say, here's your home. 
come and talk to us. We'll talk through that process. There's other people like you. We can help. And that's really what we are trying to do as a society. That's awesome to hear about. It, it sounds like you've gotten involved with a whole host of things as a research software engineer. And it's been really great to have you on so that we can hear about uh, all the different ways that people can find themselves in this path. And then also, once you're there, all the different things that you can get up to. Um, so I think we're going to wrap up there. But thank you so much for, for taking the time to come and talk to us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Um, and thanks very much, James, as well. Um, and see you at the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah.